yeah, I, I think it's less of a how to do something every single time, and it's more of a how does that song feel, how do I want it to feel, and what can I do to make it feel that way. This is the Self-Recording Band Podcast, the show where we help you make exciting records on your own, wherever you are, DIY style. Let's go. Hello and welcome to the Self-Recording Band Podcast. I am your host, Benedict Hein, and my wonderful friend and co-host, Malcolm Owen Flood, is actually not here with me today. Malcolm can't join us, unfortunately, for this episode, so I'm doing a quick solo one. But I still wanted to make it as helpful as possible for you, of course. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a Q&A episode. I have picked some questions that I got from people from our community that I'm going to answer today. So I'm going to read through those questions and give my answers. And it could be that Malcolm and I will do like in-depth episodes on some of these questions. So I'm going to give a quick actionable answer today, hopefully helpful, but we might dive deeper into some of those topics because those were great questions. And I got these questions after I did a poll in our Facebook community. So if you go to the selfrecordingband.com slash community, or just search the self-recording band community on Facebook, you'll get to our Facebook group. And in there, I sometimes do polls. I sometimes ask people, like, what is the main thing you're struggling with right now? Or what genre do you typically typically produce and stuff like that? So I try to figure out what is the most helpful content for our audience? How can we help them best? And how can I also shape my coaching programs and all that stuff? So the last time I did a poll, I asked them, what, like I asked you, basically you, the listeners and our community members, what your biggest struggle was at the moment. And people voted in the categories. There was mixing, vocal recording, drum recording, drum mixing, acoustics, workflow, all sorts of different things. Some people voted multiple things and some people commented and gave more specific answers or like questions, depending on how you look at it. And then I reached out to people and just asked, hey, what is it exactly that you're struggling with? And in doing so, I got these answers or these questions for me. And some of them I answered on our one-on-one coaching calls. Some of these I answered in the DMs and some of these I will answer now. So um, next time I reach out to you or next time I post a poll or a question in the community, just know that your answers are really helpful to everybody because this will fuel our content. Like we get ideas from that. We get inspiration from that. We learn how to help you best and like today, we might do Q&A episodes where we actually answer your specific questions. I wasn't able to reach out to everybody and ask for permission to share their names on the episode. Yeah, I'm not going to tell the names today just to, to protect everybody's privacy. So I hope that is okay. But you can go to the selfrecordingband.com slash community, submit questions anytime there. And um, if you want me to mention you on an episode, just add that in your comment or DM me and add that in your DM. Anyway, let's start. I'm going to read the questions as they were sent to me, and then I'm going to answer them. Number one, when you receive a mix, how do you know what decisions to make from a rough mix? How, and this is a two-part question. Part two is, how can you mix as you are recording so it doesn't sound like shit as you are adding layers? probably has a lot to do with space in the mix and frequency, right? Okay, so I think the core of the question is after you've done an, an initial rough mix, like a, a balance, a faders, and EQ, what do you do next? Like how do you know what decisions to make from a rough mix is the question, at least part one of it. 
So yeah, that's a good question. There's a lot to do after you've done that. And it's interesting that a lot of people struggle with the actual like process and workflow part of it. So they, they don't, it's not about techniques. They don't really know how to actually start, how to approach the mix. Okay, so when I got, get files to mix, I do an initial balance, just volume levels and pans. I try to keep the faders around zero and I just adjust the clip gain or the gain knobs on the individual channels. So I get a pretty decent rough mix, a balanced rough mix with faders at zero. That's the first step. Then I save that rough mix and then I'll list, I'll have a listen and, and, and try to figure out what is the most what is the biggest problem? What bothers me most? Usually it's the drums, if it's raw recorded drums, like real recorded drums, because drums in my genres, at least like the rock and the more heavy music genres, raw drums don't sound anything like mixed drums oftentimes. Depending on the genre a little bit, some, some stuff can sound a little raw even when mixed, but most of the time the raw drums, especially when they were recorded in the rehearsal space, if it's DIY recordings, they don't sound like a finished mixed record. So it's usually drums that bother me most. And then vocals probably. So I'll start with the drums typically and I'll just quickly like solo a couple of elements, a couple of different things. I might brighten up the cymbals a little bit, just broad strokes to begin with. I might take out some nasty resonances if I don't like a certain ring on the snare for example or like a cardboard sort of sound on the kick drum. Take some of that out, do a little cleanup, like reduce some harsh resonances in the cymbals and the overheads clean up work basically. After I've done that, I sort of immediately start polishing the drums a bit. I add a bit of low end, I add a bit of top end. I yeah, I do like a lot of EQ basically. EQ moves first, I guess. Then I make sure I do the same with vocals and guitars probably need the least amount of treatment most of the time. The bass needs a lot of treatment. So, but I go through it very quickly and do like broad strokes, broad corrections. And after I've done that, I think about how do I want the to shape the dynamics? How how do I get the maximum amount of impact without it sounding too pokey? Um, so I try to choose compressors that give me just the right amount of attack if, if, if set right, and I try to use compressors that give me the right amount of density. So I like to EQ into compressors. So I start with EQ first and then EQ into the compressor most of the time, especially if I boost top end, that prevents it from getting too harsh. Yeah, and then I start shaping the dynamics, the attack and sustain of it. Sometimes I might use transient shapers, whatever. And after I've, I've got a, a decent balance of like levels, pans, EQ shaping, dynamic shaping, getting the attack and release right, I start adding some color, I start um, listening for like what what color did the compressors already give me? Like how much saturation did I already get from EQing and compressing? And how much do I still need? Do I need like a tube style saturation? Do I need transformers? Do I need tape? What what color do I want? Do I need do I want color at all? Do I want to it to be very clean and transparent? So that is the next question. And I try to find unique sounds and unique ways of making things feel a certain way. So. That is that is that, and I spent quite a bit of time in that stage in that part of the process, just because the the feeling, the impact, the character, like more how it feels than how it actually sounds technically, is what matters most to me. So I, I spent quite a bit of time getting the the character right and finding what is special about the raw tones, finding ways to to put emphasis on that, finding ways to to shape the character and the vibe. Sometimes doing like unconventional things. And then, yeah, and then from there, it's like back and forth. I might go back a little bit on individual channels, adjust a little something. I go to the buses a lot once the initial like 
cleanup and carving of frequency has been done. I go to the buses and work from there a lot. So I might shape the whole drum bus, the whole guitar bus, the whole vocal bus and the mix bus. And I do most of my tweaks there then, like really broad strokes, all, always listening to the feel. So yeah, that's basically my approach. I hope that wasn't too confusing. It's, I, I think I, I'd have to show that in like sort of a mix walkthrough to really get, get the idea across. But I, I think I have a process, a, a thought process that I go through. So it's, it's rough mix, clean up, polish with EQ, shaping the dynamics, getting the character and the vibe right, and then balancing decisions on the buses. And somewhere in between, I, I deal with like effects stuff. So I don't know where that actually is. I think that is in the vibe and character part of it, where I start to add like delays, reverbs, slap delays, rooms, that sort of stuff. Sometimes I have to do that in the very beginning just because it's so much part of the sound that I have to hear it all the way through. Sometimes I can work with a very dry mix and only add those effects as like icing on the cake when I'm closer to finishing the mix, yeah, somewhere in between there. And I, it's important to know that, that I s fairly early, my mix bus chain starts to work as well. So I'm uh, all the time, while I'm doing all of that, I'm mixing into a mix bus chain. So that means I have a bus compressor, I have a saturation on the mix bus that I choose for the song. I, I choose a style and type and color of saturation that I think fits the song. I have a template that's pretty much dialed in, so when I hit the gain staging right and the levels in the mix, my mix bus will work right from the beginning. I, I get like two or three dB of bus compression going, not too much. I have a little bit of multiband compression, but just a dB or so per band, maybe. I have a little bit of saturation going, and uh, yeah, depending on the song, sometimes a little bit of widening, but I'm very careful with that. Sometimes I mono the low-end information, also very careful with that. Yeah, but I, I mix into that chain from the beginning. And then after the mix bus, there is a master bus. That's sort of my full mastering that I do while I mix just to get some feel for the loudness and how a limiter affects my mixing decisions. So I also mix into that a clipper and a limiter. That's Both of those are only doing like one to maybe three dB max or so. Um, so just so I get a feel of how I have to, have to shape my transients so they still work after a mastering limiter is applied. And yeah, that's just how I mix. And if I master my own mixes, I, I do that actually as part of the mixing process most of the time. So it's sort of one, one thing. Sometimes I separate the two, but m most often it's just one process because some mixing decisions inform mastering decisions when I mix my own stuff because I'm just not objective enough to do a real mastering separately from the mix. If there is a lot of time that I have, if there's no tight deadline, I might just mix, leave it there for two weeks and then come back and master in a separate session. That works better most of the time. But if, if it's a tight deadline, I don't even bother um, separating the two most of the time. It, I do it in one go, sort of. So that's just me. Okay, that was a long answer to that question. Hope that helps though. And yes, it has to do with space in the mix and frequency. So part of the cleanup and the shaping in the beginning is actually making space for everything. and putting stuff in their right spot in the space. So with EQ, you can pull things forward and backwards. You can make things narrower and wider in a way even. You can make space for other things. Compression also pulls stuff closer or pushes it back. Also changes the perception of width and depth to me. And then obviously effects. So yeah, it, it all has to do with space in the mix and frequency. Okay, next question. I think as far as room acoustics go, 
I know that can make a huge difference on how your mixes sound. And I don't really have a good room to mix in. It's also not exactly a good option for me to just move for the time being. So to just move to a new apartment, I guess. I have Sonarworks, but that's about all I have for compensating that. I don't know if I should just get Slate VSX headphones. Those are modeling headphones, by the way. Or something like that and just learn to mix with that. I know people have traditionally said not to mix on headphones, but it's 2021, so maybe that's not true anymore. So that's part one of the question. And there is a second one that I got to. Okay, room acoustics. Yeah, that makes a huge difference to your mixes. Like you need to be able to hear what you're actually working with and what you're, the changes you apply, what those actually do to your material. So you need to be able to hear properly to, to be able to Hey friend, this is Benedict from theselfrecordingband.com and if you are producing your own songs, I have a question for you. Do you ever listen to your music and feel like something is just off? Maybe the drums sound weak, or the guitar tone bothers you, maybe the vocals don't really cut through the mix, or the whole thing just doesn't sound finished and professional, but you can't really put your finger on it? I know you want to release big, punchy, professional sounding songs, right? The type of authentic, unique art that connects with your audience on a deep level. But you're just not sure what's missing with your recordings. Somehow you just can't connect all the dots. And I get it, the amount of things to learn and all the conflicting information out there can be really overwhelming. Especially if you're a lone wolf trying to figure it all out on your own, right? Now here's the good news. Whether you've been self-recording for years or you're just setting up your first home studio, I want to offer you my personal one-on-one help. As long as you are determined to put in the work, I'm offering a limited amount of free one-on-one coaching calls with me. On this hour-long call, we'll dive deep into your recordings and create a personalized roadmap for you to finally solve the issues you're struggling with so that you can release music that you'll be proud of forever. If you are ready to see and believe that it's actually possible to achieve your goals and make the records you've always wanted to make, then go to theselfrecordingband.com slash call and apply for one of my limited coaching spots. I can assure you that making exciting and successful DIY records is very doable. We've done it. Lots of other people have done it. You can do it as well. Talk soon. TheSelfRecordingBand.com slash call. Make good decisions and, 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 judge the, and judgment, judgment, basically. So that that is absolutely crucial. If you don't have a good room to mix in and there's no way to treat it and you cannot just move, then yeah, headphones plus Sonoworks is what I would recommend. If you have very high quality headphones, you can get away without Sonoworks, but in most cases actually, and I've tried a couple of headphone models, in most cases I find Sonoworks, especially on headphones, very to be very, very helpful. Helpful. Are downsides to it, like some things can, can suffer from applying EQ corrections, but but in general, most headphones benefit from that a lot. And I I, I highly recommend it. I highly recommend it. I'd, I would take the flat frequency response over like the most accurate like transient response or imaging any day. So the flat frequency response is the most important thing to me, especially when you're starting out. I think you'll benefit more from that than like whatever quality you, your headphones might have without Sonorworks. So... Sonoworks is basically a calibration software that makes your headphones sound flat, if you don't know what that is. So just check it out, see if that is something you want to try. I have it on all the time. I mix through it uh, on my monitors. I mix through it on 
different sets of headphones. And what it gives me is a consistent listening environment. So whenever I switch to another pair of headphones or if I switch between headphones and the studio monitors, if I switch between here at home in my little podcast home studio when I have to do a quick revision, when I switch between that on headphones to my actual studio control room with my monitors, I have pretty consistent monitoring and I just know what it's supposed to sound like on all these different monitoring devices. So I highly recommend Sonoworks. And I think, yeah, the advice that you shouldn't mix on headphones, I think that's not true anymore. I, I don't know if it's if, if it was ever true. I think it's different to mix on headphones and it's challenging. The stereo image is different. You have speakers attached directly to your ears. So that is definitely different from mixing on monitors where sound travels through air and arrives at both of your ears all the time. So th it's definitely different in some decisions you have to make differently or you have to take into account what that actually does. So stuff on the extreme sides sounds much louder on headphones and much clearer because those speakers are attached to your ears directly. So we, we hear guitars, for example, that are harp-penned or cymbals. We hear those very clearly on headphones just because they are right at our ears. And when we listen to that same mix on monitors, there is crosstalk, some of the right stuff, arrives at our left ear and vice versa and like some stuff cancels and we don't hear the sides as much. So on headphones we tend to mix in a way where the center is too loud. We bring up the kick, the snare, the bass, all that stuff a lot in order to compensate because we think the sides are super loud when they're actually not. So what you have to do when you mix on headphones is you need to take that into account and always make sure that you don't end up with a much too loud center. So the kick, the snare, the vocals, the bass typically. That stuff doesn't have to be so loud on headphones. And in the beginning, it takes a while to get used to that because it, it like a good mix on headphones sounds wider and the sides sound louder compared to listening to the same mix on speakers. Usually, that's what I found. So, And I, I think a lot of people would, will agree with that. But that being said, a lot of great mixes these days are being done on headphones. Like Zach Serini mixed phenomenal sounding heavy records on Apple like earbuds or... The, like Andrew Sheps mixes on headphones all the time. There are a couple of examples of people who just make made that work for them, and it's totally possible. And I think, yeah, the most important thing with monitoring is always just to know whatever you you're listening on. Like you know your monitors, know your headphones, whatever you're using. You're using. So yeah, it's 2021. Mix on on headphones. Just learn them. It's it's true. You can do it. And you don't have, like, what's what's your option here? What's your alternative? If you can't treat the room, if you can't move, I take calibrated or good headphones over a crappy room with crappy monitors all day. You can't even make that work, though. If you really know your room and your monitors, even that can work, but it's definitely challenging. So I take good headphones over that any day. So, yeah, that's my two cents. In regards to mixing, that's part two of his question. In regards to mixing, I understand some of the basics for balance and gain staging, but I'm sure Will Putney is doing more than just that. I know topics such as sidechain compression might not be the game changer for a mix, but is there something else people should consider after the balance and gain staging to really make their mix stand out? Okay, it's good that you understand the basics of balance and gain staging. I think that's where it all starts and that's the foundation. And if you don't get that right, everything else just is 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 not going to help much. So you, you need to get the volume levels, the panning and the gain staging right. Yes, that's at least half the battle. And most amateur mixes have are, are not well balanced. So volume balance sounds trivial, sh sounds easy, but it's actually something that most people struggle with. So yeah, th that's good that you you understand those basics. 
Yeah, but sure. People like Will Putney, like any professional mix engineer, do a lot more than just balancing gain staging, of course. Um, you mentioned sidechain compression. Yeah, that's something you can do. I don't do that on every mix. I do it on some mixes. These days, it gets less and less relevant to me because there are plugins like Trackspacer or other intelligent tools like Sooth or Spiff or like these sort of dynamic EQs and, and yeah, it's a mix of EQ and dynamics plugins, basically. These intelligent mixing tools that detect resonances that can make two elements work together pretty easily. Like since we have these sort of tools, I rely less on gain, uh, on, on side chaining, but I still do quite a bit of it. Um, I, I just had a coaching call uh, a couple of days ago with with someone where I explained that concept to him to if if you want a really big low end and you don't really want to sacrifice any of the bass for example you don't want to EQ the bass too much because you you're afraid you you're losing a certain note and you will lose some musical information if you EQ bass if you're afraid to do that and you don't want to carve out certain frequencies in the bass to in order to keep the balance then you can for sure sidechain it with the kick drum to make space so every time the kick hits the bass ducks for a second or like a couple of milliseconds basically and you can do that to a very specific frequency where the bass drum lives or you can do that to the whole low end down from a certain frequency or you can do it to the whole bass whatever you want so side chaining still is a thing that I do quite a bit and it's super helpful but there are also other tools these days but what I actually wanted to say is that this is not the most important thing you should worry about right now. So sign chaining is, as you said, it's it's not the game changer for, for a mix. Is there something else people should consider after the balancing gain staging to really make the mix stand out? Yeah, as I said in the first question, basically, it's EQ choices. It's shaping the dynamics. It's shaping the attack and release of things. It's making sure some that the right stuff is up front and close and other stuff is further back, like the, the perception of depth in the mix. It's getting the width right. Um, and I don't mean like using imagers or widening tools and stuff like that. People always think about that immediately if you talk about width. I don't mean that. I don't. I mean by clever panning decisions and EQing stuff in a clever way. So most often you, you can make something wider by just adding top end to it because typically the more low end heavy stuff is more in the center and the brighter stuff is more on the outsides. So if you add top end to your guitars and top end to your cymbals, the sides of your mix get a little louder if you pan those apart. So your whole mix starts to get wider. So you can do that with MS, but you can just literally just just add top end to stuff that's on the sides and it will make those things appear a little louder and the mix wider without clashing with, with, with what's in the center. That's typically more mid-range or low-end focused like kick drum, bass, vocals, stuff like that, snare drum. So the width, the depth, the shaping of the dynamics, the impact. So compressors are not just to squeeze something and to reduce dynamics. They they shape the way, like they shape how hard things hit basically. At least that's how I think about it. So when I shape drums with a compressor, I don't really think about controlling the dynamics as much. Sometimes that's, that needs to be done. But I think about how it, it, it changes the sound. I get additional attack and crack out of a snare drum if I compress it in a certain way. I get additional like smack out of a kick drum. I get additional explosiveness and like sustained from room sounds. I can make a room sound bigger than it actually is with compression. I can add grit. All these things. I can make a low, a boomy low end tighter and smaller. I can make something more boomy depending on what compressor I use, depending on the box tone of that certain piece of gear and depending on how I set it I can I can change how things sound and more, most importantly how they feel so 
playing around with those dynamics and the transient information. Transients are the first part of the sound, like the initial attack of a drum, for example, or the pick attack of a guitar. You can shape that with a compressor. You can completely eliminate that and make this and push the sound back um, in doing so. So if you like kill the, the the attack of the drums and kill the attack of a guitar, the the sound of that of that element will be will sound more distant. It won't be as direct and close. Whereas if you leave the the attack through and control the sustain part of it, it might sound pretty aggressive and upfront, and you might have all the the attacks pretty close to your ears. And it's like you can shape how upfront something sounds, how aggressive something sounds, the sibilance and the voice, the the plosives, all that can be shaped with the attack of a compressor. And how aggressive it is can be shaped with the release of a compressor. So I think about it that way, I think. And then to really make a mix stand out, yeah, you can make like corrective EQ moves, but you can also make pretty bold EQ moves. You can shape things. You can make something sound aggressive and ugly. You can make something sound muddy on purpose. You can make something sound like big and woofy almost in a way. In the low end, you can make something really like... You can add rumble, uncontrolled wild rumble, or you can make something tighter. Like there's creative bold EQ moves. There's polishing and there is correction, and all of that that goes together. All of that is 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 done after the initial balance and gain staging part. I think so, but like I hope that you understand that the most important thing is the vibe, the character, how it feels. So it doesn't matter what the meters say. It doesn't matter how many plugins you need to achieve it. It doesn't matter which gear or plugins you use. It doesn't matter what any sort of book or rule says. I don't believe in any like rule in audio or any like hard rules to follow all the time. It only matters like what comes out of the speakers. That's the only thing that matters. It's good to know the rules so you can break them on purpose. But yeah, I, I think... It's less of a how to do something every single time and it's more of a how does that song feel? How do I want it to feel? And what can I do to make it feel that way? So yeah, there's there's that. I hope that was helpful. Now, next question. How do you get the vocals to sit in the mix but also be clear? And what about the push-pull of compression versus reverb, delay, and EQ? Uh, he says, I'm putting LA-2A and 1176 compression as an insert, then reverb and delay as effects channels in Cubase. Mixing-wise, it's mainly drum levels I'm struggling with because I'm not a drummer. With mastering, I have no idea where to start at all. At the moment, just have a mastering VST on the stereo out. Okay, so there's a lot of different angles to this, a lot of different questions, lots to unpack here. Let's start. How do you get the vocals to sit in the mix, but also be clear? Good question. <laughs> but I think it's, it's, it's really a good question because clear vocals usually means bright vocals, usually means dynamically controlled, compressed vocals, so, you, so that they are up front and, and like on top of the mix most of the time. That's what makes a vocal clear and crisp and like, I, yeah, that, that's just it. But the risk is, the danger is, to make it so upfront and clear that it sits on top of the mix and not it's it's not a real part of the mix anymore. So there is indeed this balance of a vocal being very clear versus it like sitting in the mix well. So what what I do is when it comes to frequencies, to me the mid range and lower mid range does a lot of that. I love, and I, that's a tip I've given to a bunch of my my coaching students and and like people I had one on one calls with a lot. That is, there is this plugin called the Mach EQ or Mac EQ. 
M-A-A-G, Mag is the company, and then the plugin is called M EQ4. It's a hardware piece, actually, but there's a plugin by plugin lines that actually sounds pretty phenomenal. And this EQ has a 650 hertz knob. There's no Q, no bandwidth. There is just one knob, set fixed frequency. You can turn it up or down. And that just is the the perfect spot for me and the perfect EQ to do that to bring a vocal forward or backward. So if I dot, if I turn that up, that like mid-range 650 on that EQ, it sounds like the 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 singer just stepped a step forward. And if I turn it down, if I take some of that out, it immediately pushes the vocal back into the mix. So I don't know what it is that this specific plugin or this specific EQ does so well, but I love it. I don't I don't know and I don't care. It's just awesome. I can achieve a similar effect with other plugins, of course, but I really like the way this particular EQ does it. So this is my sort of back and forth dial often in my mixes, but it's in general the lower mid-range or the mid-range that does that for me. Also like a very broad boost from like, I don't know, 800 or like 1K or so and very broad uh, in the mid-range. Just boosting that a bit brings the vocal forward, makes it more aggressive too much and it gets honky or nasal, but a little bit especially with aggressive vocals, can really make it sound up front. Again, scooping some of that out pushes it back a little. So that's part of it. you got to find the balance there. Oftentimes it's not a volume thing. Oftentimes you need to make it loud. Then it sounds too loud, and then you just need to dial a little bit, that mid-range down a little bit to make it sit better. Or you think you might think, okay, this is actually sitting pretty well, but it's not like clear and upfront enough. So just a, in, instead of like making it louder, a little mid-range push might do the trick. If it's already sounding fat and full and forward, but not clear enough, so not um, intelligible enough, an upper mid-range boost is usually what helps like 2K, 3K, 4K, 5K, whatever. Make sure it's not getting sibilant or harsh, but usually you need clarity in that area. Not so much the real top end, like the, the real top end, like 10K and above, is like air, is um, that airy pop vocal thing. Or it can also lead to the perception of, of a vocal being very, very close if you have a lot of the mouth noises, the sibilance pronounced. If you add a lot of top end, that stuff just gets louder and it sounds more intimate and, and close. So that can help with bringing something a little to the front, but usually that's more air and a certain quality and, and expensive sound that that adds and a certain vibe more than it making it really like sit on top or in, of the mix more. So when I want to make it clearer, I go for the upper mid-range instead, like 2K, 3K, 4K, 5K, somewhere there. I, I search for a spot where I can boost broad if possible. That's also where the guitars have a lot of energy usually, so you got to find the balance there. And you don't want to get the whole. You don't want to make the whole mix sound too harsh. Then compression is obviously part of it. You have to control the dynamics enough so that even a quiet vocal that sits well in the mix is audible and clear at all times. If a vocal is too dynamic, and Malcolm has said that a couple of times on the podcast, that a lot of amateur mixes have just too dynamic vocals or too dynamic everything, and that is a problem because. We, as much as we love dynamics, stuff has to be controlled in order for it to be clear all the time. And I'd rather squeeze something and take all the dynamics out of it and make it clear and consistent and then add the necessary dynamics intentionally by hand than leaving the original dynamics if they are not really intentional. <laughs> so what I mean is usually the, the dynamic changes in a raw recording are not 100% intentional. They are there are dynamic variations in there for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes it's on purpose, but oftentimes it's not. So I'd rather 
flatten all of that, make it consistent, make it sound explosive, make it sound upfront, make sure the transients, the, the plosives just hit right and sound right, make it sound as close as I want it to be or as dynamic as I want it to be, whatever works. And then add whatever's lacking in dynamics or whatever I killed in dynamics, I add that back with automation. So um, on purpose, I might make certain words louder or quieter certain parts louder or quieter. So I like to control it first and then bring in whatever dynamic movement I need. And and that is a big part of the clarity for me. Yeah, vocal clarity comes with like controlling the dynamics in the right way and shaping the frequencies right. Hope that helps. There's much more to that, but for now, I think that that will give you some, some things to experiment with. What about the push-pull of compression versus reverb delay and EQ? Okay, I kind of answered that. I think your chain here with the LA-2A and the 1176 compression as inserts, this is the tried and true classic. So you have, the concept is you have a faster compressor followed by a slower compressor or a slower compressor followed by the faster one. Both can work. The faster one will take off the peaks and will react very fast to, to like transients, plosives. And then the slower one will be more musical and will do a, a general leveling. So whatever the, like if you if you start with the fast limiter sort of, or fast compressor, you control the, the very fast stuff, the, the dynamics of the attack and the transients. And then you follow that with a musical compressor that does the overall leveling and add some, some tone and stuff. If you reverse the order and start with the slower one, you can shape the overall dynamics, you can add tone, you can squeeze it as much as you want, and whatever that slower compressor is not able to control, whatever gets through in transient information, that will be caught by the faster limiter or faster compressor that follows the slower compressor. So both can work, you have to try what works for you in, in your song. But this is a tried and true chain, a classic chain. You add reverb and delay as effects channels, yeah, that's the way to do it. Reverb and, and delays on auxes or effects channels, like send and return configurations and not on the inserts. Some people mix with that stuff on the inserts and use the mix knob instead. I prefer not to do that because I don't want my vocal EQ changes or anything I want to change after the reverb. I don't want to affect my reverb. So you'd have to be careful to, to make the reverb last on the chain probably if you don't want that. But there's more reasons to why I don't like that setup. But hey, whatever works for you. So the classic thing is dynamics and EQ is inserts and um, reverb, delay, stuff like that on, on sends and returns. So yeah, you're correct here. I think if there's something like correct. <laughs> now, the push-pull between uh, the push-pull of compression versus reverb and EQ. Yeah, I mean, all of that is part of it. As I said, the frequency and the shaping of the dynamics is the most important thing for me. But of course, a delay, a slap delay, a reverb can help make something sit in the mix better. That's totally part of it. Like a, a small slap delay, a short slap delay, very subtle, can can create a little ambience and room sound around a vocal that just makes it blend better with everything else. And you might find that at the exact same volume, it all of a sudden sits better in the mix and is not on top as much anymore. So yeah, that's that's also part of it. And it's, I, I don't know what you mean with push-pull, but yeah, it's it's this balance of all these things. That's what you probably mean. And, and you're right. So part of it is EQ shaping, part of it is dynamics, part of it is automation, part of it is effects. And you gotta combine those things, right? And you gotta learn how to identify what it is that act, that your specific song or part actually needs in order to for it to feel right. And I can't give any advice here without hearing the song. So I hope that helps still. 
Now, the last part, oh, and I, there's two more parts to that question. Mixing-wise, it's mainly drum levels I'm struggling with, he says, as I'm not a drummer. Yep, that's pretty common. So two two thoughts here, two approaches. If it's a modern, heavy, polished, clearly defined sort of sound that you're going for, then I would focus on the close mics and start with those and get a good balance between kick, snare, and the toms. You can look at an analyzer and just just for starters, to get a good starting point, you can see like how much low-end energy is there if I solo the kick, like where does the kick peak, like what frequency is that, and how loud is that on the analyzer, on the frequency analyzer. Then you can bring in the snare, and you'll find that if the kick is at, say, 60 hertz or so, and then you pull up the, the snare, and this is at 200, then you can sort of, of course, balance by ear, but you can also look at the analyzer and see that how how well they are balanced. Uh, if there's if this if this is a sort of health, healthy relationship, or if one is way louder or more energetic than the other, you gotta learn your analyzer. Of course, you gotta know how it's set. Like there's different slopes to the analyzer. Like depending on how you set that, it sh- it equal energy looks equal or it doesn't look equal. It can be tilted. Like there's different settings for different analyzers, but maybe watch some of your favorite mixes on that analyzer, learn how a great kick and snare balance, what that looks like typically, and then look at yours. And I say look because, of course, you should mix with your ears, but in the beginning, if you're not so sure about whether or not you hear the correct stuff or whether or not you are able to identify problems and whether or not your monitoring is good enough, analyzers can help a lot, at least to get to a good starting point. So I would start with bringing in the kick and the snare and then the toms and I would make sure that this is somewhat balanced and so it sounds balanced but also looks sort of balanced on the analyzer. Then I would shape those things, make them sound impactful. And when it comes to drum levels, I would then bring in the the overheads, filter them so I would focus I would view them as mostly as mainly like cymbal mics and get a decent balance of cymbals versus close mics. That is the approach that I use for like heavy modern polished very defined sort of sounding stuff. If the other approach is if you want a more raw, organic, dirty sort of sound, I'd start with the rooms and the overheads and make sure the whole kit sounds balanced in them. So that requires a good recording or a good programming um, and setting the mixer and the and the virtual drums just right so that the the overheads, the kit mics and the, the rooms give you a great balanced sound. It might lack impact and and... Yeah, it's like this upfront, yeah, impact basically and, and direct sound, but it should sound pretty balanced. And then you fill in whatever is lacking with the close mic. So you add a little kick drum, a little snare drum, little toms, but you don't filter the kit or the rooms as much and you view them more as kit mics as opposed to like only cymbal mics. So that is the approach for the more dirty classic sort of sounding organic sort of sounding drum stuff so when it comes to levels these are my two approaches either get the balance between the close mics just right and then bring in the cymbal mics or start with a well mic'd overheads and rooms and then yeah and then reinforce basically whatever is lacking power with the close mics that's that's my approach there and if you're not a drummer and that's be- that's the reason why you struggle with that then i just watch i would just watch a ton of videos of people playing drums i would record my own i would like videotape my, my drummer of the band and just watch him play and and like listen to what it sounds like in the room listen to what the balance between the individual lam- uh, elements is watch how he how hard he hits or she hits certain elements of the kit 
I would watch videos on YouTube of good drummers that you like, and I would just learn what a good drum balance sounds like. I would analyze my favorite songs, look at an analyzer. Um, I would do a lot of research and learn it that way. I think there's no way around. I know people, I know engineers and producers who actually took drum lessons, not because they wanted to be drummers, but because they wanted to understand drummers better. They wanted to know why drummers play certain things a certain way, why they don't play other things, what is actually possible, what are what is like a good take, like how dynamic should things be, how hard should you hit. So I know a couple of people who took drum lessons just for the sake of understanding drummers better. So if that's something you want to do, that's very, very, very helpful. I didn't ever take drum lessons. I taught myself to play drums, and I'm not a good drummer, but I can play decent enough to be able to talk to drummers and understand them, and I can track um, drums like if it's not something too complicated I can do a pretty okay job of tracking drums so that helps if you can do that but whatever you want to do doing research will get you a long way so yeah with mastering I have no idea where to start at all at the moment I just have a mastering VST on the stereo out so to be honest I think for now that is enough you should focus on the tracking and the mixing more than anything mastering is People blow mastering way out of proportion. It is important, but it's also so challenging and difficult to get right that I wouldn't even speak of like proper mastering if you do it yourself in a DIY situation. That's not mastering. That's just part of the mix. Even I, I know how to master, and I, I think I can do a pretty good job mastering other people's stuff. That's part of my job. But even I, when I mix my, my stuff my, like or, or mixes for other people, and I also do the mastering, I view mastering, as I said before, as sort of part of the mix almost, because I think true mastering is really a separate step. It requires a different mindset. It should be done, ideally, in a different room by a different person with different ears, because it's also that objective perspective and feedback and all that. That's not necessary every single time. And I do a lot of masters myself of stuff that I'm mixing, and it works perfectly well. And a lot of hits are made that way. So it doesn't have to be that way. But that is what I would actually call mastering. Everything else is just refining the mix to me. So you've mixed it, you've made it as sound as great as possible and you you shape the stereo like in from, like the the yeah, you you're shaping your mix on the mix bus or the master bus or whatever you want to call it essentially, but it, it's still part of of the mix. You're making it sound the best it can be, right? So it's not really separate in this case. So, long story short, I think you shouldn't worry about mastering too much. It's like the comp- most complicated, most detailed sort of thing. It requires the best monitoring, the best gear of, of all the steps involved in the process. So just having a mastering VST on the stereo out is is good. If you use it subtle enough that, so that it doesn't completely destroy your mix, if it's just for some additional loudness and a little bit of like maybe EQ correction automatically or whatever, then that's totally fine. Don't abuse it use it in a very subtle way just use it to get some to get the level up a little bit and to control some of the dynamics maybe um you can use something something like what is it called the uh, what is it called master balance uh, there's this uh, i don't know malcolm would know this this there, i don't use this tool but i think it's pretty cool actually it's this this also i think this isotope tool that sort of shows you whether or not you're in the ballpark when it comes to like the frequency distribution or frequency like content of the whole mix or master so if you set that right if you use automatic tools like that that's 
totally fine for starters. There's online mastering services. Some of those are really bad, as we all know. But there are now, there are some that are actually pretty decent. So there is one called Master, M-A-A-S-T-R. It's it's by Jay Moss. He's a great dude. I, I interviewed him on my other podcast. He's a great engineer, awesome dude to, t- to talk to. Uh, you should go check out that interview, by the way. it's uh, If you go to benedictine.com slash podcast, you'll find my interview episodes there. And so, most of those are in German, but there are some some English episodes as well. And one is with Che Moss, who's amazing. And he created this online mastering service called Master that actually really sounds pretty fucking good. <laughs> I, just, I tried it and it, it's pretty amazing. So um, you can use stuff like that. And even if it's just to compare it to whatever you can do, it's, it's great. So you can even use things like Lander. I'd, I wouldn't recommend using that for the actual release, but just try it. It's not expensive. Try it. Compare it to your results and and see what sounds better and just l- use it as a learning experience, I think. Maybe that's bad advice because you shouldn't try <laughs> to mimic how Lander, like what Lander is doing, but maybe it's good advice because you see that you can do even better than Lander or you, you, you notice some real fundamental flaws in your master compared to those automatic things. So I would give it a shot. But yeah, don't worry about the mastering too much. Worry about the mix. And just know that mastering is way more than just loudness and EQ shaping. It's it's quality control. It's a lot of technical stuff like metadata and making sure it translates well is the, the, the most important thing that mastering needs to accomplish, I think. And it's very hard to do if you don't have super accurate monitoring as well. So there's almost no way you can do that really at home properly at least compared to mastering engineers. So it's so much more than just applying compression limiting and EQ to a master. It's sometimes mastering engineers don't do anything if the mix is awesome. They just provide feedback on the mix. They do a quality control. They might do half a dB or so here and there or nothing at all if the mix is just fine. And then they might just trans make sure the transfer works. They might just create all the final formats with great sample rate conver- conversion. They might upsample, downsample and and like create all the all the assets basically, all the deliverables, like the different wave files, the the vinyl master, the DDP image for the CD manufacturing. Sometimes that's all they do if the mix is awesome. And that's also part of the skill of a good mastering engineer is knowing when not to do anything at all. And so there's so much more to mastering. And I think as a DIY mixing engineer, there are such good tools out there these days that you can definitely use something automatic or maybe just throw a clipper and a limiter on, do a couple of dBs to get the level up. And if you have a balanced mix, and that's what you should focus on, if you have a balanced mix that hasn't that, that, that doesn't have like too too many issues in any, like that is... I mean, that means a balanced mix, like where the low end is controlled enough, where there's no honky nasal or boomy or boxy mid-range, where there's no too harsh top end or upper mid-range, like just a balanced, great mix that feels awesome. If you have that and you just throw a clipper and or a limiter on to get a couple of dBs more loudness, then that should actually sound pretty good. Like the balance in the mix is the most important thing and you should be able to get it to whatever loudness you want pretty easily if the mix is balanced. If the mix is unbalanced, it's hard to make something loud. It's hard to make something feel great. It's hard to make something dense enough in mastering. So you're actually better off focusing on the mix than just bringing it up a couple of dB, maybe shaping the dynamics, making it as dense as you want it or as dynamic as you want it, maybe polishing it a little bit, add a little bit of overall low end, overall top end, shaping the mid-range a tiny bit or so, and then just 
bringing the level up and that that's basically it and and if you do that and the mix is great i think this will get you very far and then once you've perfected that the next step is to take off your full mastering and send your mix to a real mastering engineer because it's not super expensive and have someone master your song for like 50 to 100 or 150 bucks depending on who you go to per song so even for like yeah be- like below 100 bucks per song you can get a qu- pretty awesome master and yeah I would just do that and then see if you can beat it (laughs) or if it's worth it to you or just take it as a learning experience and then try to match it or take the feedback that they hopefully give you if you ask. So that's what I would do. And I would send my my mastered version plus the one without my mastering plugins on them. And I would send both to the mastering engineer so they hear what you heard. They they see what, what you were trying to do. And they can use whatever version works best for them to 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 get it to perfection. And yeah. All right. That has been longer than I expected it to be. So you know what? We'll do a second one of these. This is fun. So I've answered quite a, a couple of questions now. I have plenty of questions left, but this would be too long of an episode. So I'm just going to continue. How about that? Let me know if you enjoy these sort of episodes and talk to you next week. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Hey friend, thanks again for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this one, just know that this is just a tiny fraction, a small taste of what we can actually do to help you completely transform your recordings and mixes forever. If you are really serious about your music, if you want to reach your goals as a self-recording artist, then please apply now for the Self-Recording Syndicate, our coaching program that takes you from where you are to being able to completely independently produce and release exciting sounding music forever. If you join that program, you're going to be part of a very, very passionate, dedicated, committed group of self-recording artists from all around the world. And you're going to get a roadmap, guidance, feedback, personal access to me and the team. We're going to do everything, literally everything we can to help you make the best recordings you can possibly make And it all starts with a free first call, completely free, no strings attached. Best case scenario, we're going to end up working together and we're going to completely transform the way your music sounds. Worst case scenario, you're going to get an hour of free coaching and an action plan that you can then take and implement on your own. So if that sounds interesting to you, get started now with your first completely free call by going to theselfrecordingband.com slash call or just click the link in the show notes. See you next week.